Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 133 of Sports Speak. I'm Eddie Kalegi. And I'm Tim Moore. Busy episode ahead. Jordan Sarnoff, our good friend who went viral during March Madness as the SID for Fairleigh Dickinson. He'll be joining us in about 15 minutes, so we are going to have a lot of fun with him on but a couple of stories to talk about in the sports world. I'm just going to leave it at this for the NBA playoffs. One, I don't know what happens to the Phoenix Suns when they see a European superstar at home in an elimination game, but it's not pretty. And the Suns are out in disastrous fashion for the second straight year. And number two, we're recording this on Friday. It's probably going to be posted on Saturday. So this may age poorly, but right now, that Corgi about the Lakers Warriors series is looking pretty smart. And if LeBron somehow chokes a 3-1 lead, I don't know how the internet is still going to be standing by next week. So we're just going to have to wait and see what happens with that great NBA postseason so far. But the big news uh, in football is the schedule release official, the NFL slate set for 2023. Tim, uh, every team had their own creative and some of them were kind of stupid uh, social media videos of how to uh, present the schedule. I will say there were some good ones as well. I like the Titans one where they were asking fans based on the logo. Uh, the Broncos did an office parody, but no laughing for the Giants because they become the first team in NFL history to go on a stretch where they play seven out of nine games on the road to start a season. And I think the general consensus here is after the NFC East had such an easy schedule last year and got three teams into the playoffs. Uh, the league is not taking them as lightly per se this year. And after three NFC East teams made it to at least the divisional round last year, I don't know if that's happening this year. Well, uh, it, it, I don't think it will happen this year. I think it'll be two NFC East teams, but on the contrary, I think it goes opposite terms from last season's schedule from the New York Giants. Because what you have to remember is the Giants played a lot of home games to open up the year last season uh, throughout their trips uh, back and forth. And, of course, the Giants as well played London last season. Um, but the way I look at it is this, is that, you know, yeah, 7-9 to open up the road. You know, obviously they open up the season at home against the Dallas Cowboys. I'm excited for this season. And honestly, I, I don't know if we could get better last season from an energy perspective in regards to the fact that the Giants surpassed expectations. But there's going to be a lot of competitive football teams. And what I'm most excited for, to be honest with you, is not just seeing the Giants again on a lot of primetime spots. For example, that big Sunday night football game you'll see uh, at Dable's return against the Buffalo Bills. Uh, that should be an energetic one. Of course, Giants-Cowboys Sunday night football week one. I, I feel that it's going to really start telling the tale, not just for the, for the record for the Giants, but honestly the entire NFC East, about how good of a draft everybody in the NFC East pretty much had this year, that you're starting to see development and really starting to see the change and changing the narrative that the NFC East uh, is the weakest division in the NFL, arguably, uh, of past seasons. Of course, I'll argue right now it's the NFC South. Um, but overall, I think that, that narrative is quickly changing itself, and I'm excited to see. But I'll also say this, too. Uh, you know, a lot of people are kind of opposed. They don't like the Giants playing the Cowboys week one. Of course, I know the Giants have a big drought against Dallas, um, and they play at home to open up the season. But I'd argue this point because one thing that made week 17 or week 18 now technically so exciting every year in football was the fact that they scheduled the end of the season to always be divisional games to close out the year. So, of course, the Giants last year 
didn't play division games to open up the season. I believe all kind of. I think it was uh, the the Titans last year. Mm-hmm. Duh. But that was their neutral opponent. They weren't playing any more AFC South teams. Um, so the way I view it is this is my point is that I feel that division games should open and close out the year because I think that's what makes it more exciting and more meaningful to even open up and close out a season. So I hope that is. But also, I want to make one more th- uh, statement as well. I love, absolutely, absolutely love that the NFL this year has come to agreements that not every single team is guaranteed a primetime spot because I think it puts an emphasis to not just putting a good football product on the field, but also puts a hefty emphasis, in my opinion, of making sure that the teams that people actually want to watch are getting prioritized. And listen, no offense to the, the poorly performing teams, um, but I'm not intrigued turning on football and watching, I don't know, the Cleveland Browns when they're 0-16 in a primetime spot, you know, every season. It's just not me. Yeah, yeah. And, like, those Thursday night games, too, which were dreadful a few weeks in a row with just no offense. And uh, those teams do not deserve to be getting primetime spots right now. But uh, we just flashed the graphic uh, of the giant schedule on the screen. And to me, there's an opportunity period that's really going to make or break their season. It's after the Cowboy game on the 12th. They play Washington, New England, Green Bay, and New Orleans in four straight games. Those are all very winnable games for the Giants. And I really think they need to try to go 4-0 there because, of course, the schedule is front-loaded. They're playing against the AFC East, not the AFC South this year. So you have Aaron Rodgers, you have the Bills, and you have the Dolphins. Three very challenging games. New England is beatable. Green Bay, you beat them last year in London. The Saints are just not good. Neither is the rest of their division. And Washington is the albatross of the East. So those are four games the Giants need to win before they have two of three to finish out against the Eagles. So in general, here's the deal. The NFC is not deep at all. I'd argue, you said how the East is no longer the worst division. I'd argue it's the best division right now because the West, there's still uncertainty of of who San Francisco's quarterback is going to be and whether Stafford's going to be healthy and if Geno Smith can replicate things. The North loses Aaron Rodgers and the South is awful. So the East is very good, in my opinion, not just because of who they're playing against, but just in comparison, they have competent teams but the challenge is they have a harder schedule and every division is guaranteed at least one team in the playoffs so getting three in again is going to be hard is it possible absolutely the Giants prove they belong Dallas is still very good and the Eagles are going to be great as well so all three of those teams can very likely make a playoff run in my opinion but the Giants I think that make or break stretch is those four games the Eagles I'll turn to And I'll flash the graphic on the screen as well. My thing with Philadelphia is just in general, how are they going to handle the five game horrible stretch in the middle part of the season? They have a stretch where they play five games and they involve Kansas City, Buffalo, San Francisco and the Cowboys twice. That is lethal. There's a bye week thrown in there as well. But that is going to be extremely challenging to pick up wins. Plus, they have to play the Jets, the Dolphins. They play the Giants twice later in the season. Eagles did own the Giants in all three games last year, but the Giants are a good team. The Eagles on Christmas? Are you kidding me? That's going to be fun. That episode right before Christmas is going to be great. I mean, that is... 
That is a Christmas and present. And of course, they they end the season as well. Giants Eagles again, week eighteen. That could be a meaningful or meaningless game, you know, based upon last year. So that that'll be exciting. But also, when do the Eagles play San Francisco? Do they not play San Francisco this year? They do play San Francisco. It's right before they play Dallas. It's after they play Kansas City and Buffalo. So they have a five week stretch where it's. I think it's Dallas by, and then like the Chiefs, the Bills, San Francisco, and Dallas. Right. It's 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 around weeks nine to fourteen. Eagles start off easy. They have some games that they should win early in the season. They have a primetime game against Minnesota at home. And based on what we've seen the last five years when the Eagles play the Vikings, that should be an easy win. You get Washington out of the way twice early in the year. I don't think New England is going to be very good this season. So there are teams that the Eagles can absolutely beat. And they play a lot of teams in the NFC West this year. So Arizona, the Rams have questions. Seattle has questions. So those are games the Eagles have to win. Early in the year, the Eagles have to rack up six wins, I think, before week nine, because it is very likely that they go one and four over that five-game stretch, because those are really good teams that they have to face. Chiefs and Bills, impossible to beat. The Niners are going to want revenge for last year. And Dallas, I mean, they're they're, they're probably going to split with them, because that's what always happens. So it's just going to be really tough for them. End of the year, uh, feed on the Giants. And hey, for the Giants, it might actually be better if it's a meaningless game because Davis Webb played better against the Eagles than Daniel Jones did the two times they played. So, uh, but once we get closer to the season, we will uh, go through the schedule once we have the rosters more finalized in July and give our official predictions, but wanted to at least bring it up here and shout out to the Jets. They're finally going to get a lot of primetime games this year with Aaron Rodgers. But uh, coming up now, we're going to have Jordan Sarnoff joining us here on Sportsbeat. Well, continuing here on Sportspeak, I'm Eddie Kalegi. And I'm Tim Moore. Our next guest, he sort of went viral during March Madness. He is the SID, a student at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Of course, the team that pulled off the second ever 16-1 upset in the NCAA men's basketball tournament over Purdue. Jordan Sarnoff, we've been trying to put this together. Now we finally do because this is your lighter period. You only got one sport active right now at FDU because the... College sports season is pretty much over, but how you been? Thanks for joining us here on Sportspeak. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, guys. I know we've been trying to lock this down for a couple months now. I'm glad we were finally able to make it work. And yeah, like you said, this is the lighter period. Still a lot going on. we got some exciting projects going on that I'm sure we'll talk about during the interview. But yeah, no, definitely, uh, definitely glad to hop on and uh, appreciate the time. Yeah, so let's just start with this. The game itself, you're in the building against Purdue, just the feeling in your mind when you started to believe we knew Tobin Anderson was very pumped up about the game. He felt like that this was there was a way there was a path to beat this Purdue team. And of course, you guys found it. So just take me through that vibe when you were in that building as the belief started to come together and ultimately it culminated with one of the biggest upsets in college basketball history. All right. So a lot of people have taken interest in this because I've been asked this question a lot. My mom took the fan bus from Hackensack Arena to Dayton. It was almost 11 and a half hours. She was one of the chaperones because she works at the school in the business college. And she asked me, she goes, do you think you have a shot to win in Dayton? I said, yes, we will win in Dayton. I had a lot of confidence. She goes, all right, I'm going to get a hotel room separate from the group, and I'll look at buses, and I'll come to Columbus for the next game. Okay, great. We beat Texas Southern, and we're on the bus going from 
uh, Dayton to Columbus. We did it that night after the Texas Southern game. My dad calls me. He goes, look, I'm looking at flights. It's a little expensive. What do you think? I said, I think we're going to win by five. I called it that night. And then we go and we win by three. So then watching this unfold, I'm like, holy hell, am I actually right? Like it's, it's, it's unbelievable what happened. And people talk about living in the moment, right? Like as a broadcaster, you're calling the action. I was sitting there at the scores table, a seat away from the PA announcer and next to the uh, official score. And then my counterpart from Purdue was sitting on my right. And I'm just thinking, what's happening? Like I'm looking at the scoreboard. I'm looking at Tobin. I'm looking behind me where my AD is sitting with our commissioner. And we're just like, this is going to happen. And then it happens after you believe it. So the long-winded, you know, answer to your question, yeah. I mean, I had that belief we were going to win. Maybe I was fired up too by Tobin's locker room speech when he says, the more I watch them, the more I think we can beat them. But yeah, kind of kind of called our shot. But my question for you, bigger, bigger is when it comes to the end when you get done with your undergraduate uh career with FDU. Is that upset going to be the biggest moment of your career, or is it going to be getting covered by Barstool and all these other things that, let's be honest, <laughs> didn't expect happening just going into that game? Because I think for me, of course, I had the buzzer beater with NJCU, which I never would have thought ever would happen being yeah. top play sports center. But for me, you know, I would have thought, hey, that would have happened to me. It was the Barstool coverage. I'm the only one on the Zoom really- call that has never been featured on Barstool before. So I am. <laughs> I'm a lone ranger. So you, so you got some catching up to do then. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> no, I. The dream when you go to a mid-major or low major like FDU is it is easier for a school like us to make it to the Division One men's basketball championship than it is a high major where you saw, I mean, I don't want to put fuel on the fire, but like Rucker is going to the NIT, Hofstra going to the NIT. Like it's not easy to be one of 68. And so for us, yes, the Merrimack situation, all that kind of got, you know, brushed away when we did what we did. But I think when you dream of, you know, I wanted to be a part of a March Madness run, never in my wildest dreams did I think it would happen in this role, right? Because it's just so out of left field to be an undergraduate and you're the director of communications for a division one school. Like that doesn't happen, especially in this market. Um, Getting all of, the attention that came with it once it became widely known what my deal was who i was and what i do i think that just was more fulfilling but that didn't make or break the experience it's obviously really appreciated and i've been able to connect with people who i never thought i would have been able to connect with just because of people reaching out hey i'm going to give your number to so and so like all that happens and it's awesome and it's not something i take for granted But being able to tell the story and play a role in what unfolded, you know, over a week in Ohio, like that's something I'll never forget. And I mean, we were just joking in the office this morning. I'm still being sent text messages or uh, photo. I'm being texted photos and videos of stuff that I don't even remember happening. I didn't even drink that much when we were in Ohio. And like, I'm getting these pictures and I'm like, wait, that happened. I wore that. What? And so it's it's really special. There's a lot that happens behind the scenes and off the court that, you, you know, you never forget. So let's talk about just your role and 
what you do because it's so unique. Now, I'm at Rutgers. I'm sitting at the radio station right now, and I know when we call a game how instrumental the SID is to providing information for us. And usually those people are in their 30s and 40s, not a undergraduate student. So uh, we know you do that, but how are you able to balance all of that with what you're doing in college as well with your classes and then just in general, just the full-on college experience? How are you able to kind of bridge that balance per se? Yeah, it's, it's a balance, like you said. But what I've learned is balance is not 50-50. It is how you can prioritize what's important to you. And for me, you know, I'm in my office right now. I basically live here. This is where I want to be. This is where I feel I'm going to learn the most, make the most impact. And yes, I recognize the importance of a degree. And obviously, that's something that you need to have. I'm in my third year at FDU. I need 30 more credits for graduation. Like, we're moving along here. I sometimes tilt the scale to be 70% athletics, 30% academics. And that college experience that you referenced, I think it's what each student makes of it. So for some, that's going to, you know, a big time football school where Saturdays are a religious experience. It's going to a party school, so to speak, or it's going to a place like FDU where You know, the campus gets a little quiet on the weekends. It's primarily a commuter school. A lot of our students that live on campus are either international or student athletes. And so for me, the college experience is not going out and partying or, you know, going out to the mall or whatever. It's, you know, really bunkering down, getting to work. And then you really get to see the fruits of that labor when, you know, a storyline I put in the game notes gets talked about on a broadcast or something happens and I have to react at 11 o'clock at night. Um, I think that's kind of my experience. But yeah, it, it really comes down to what you make of it. And it's not particularly easy. I do miss a lot of class time. I'm constantly, you know, cramming in assignments. But that's what I chose to do. And honestly, if I had to make the choice over again, I would do it in a heartbeat. And you kind of mentioned 11 p.m. From my perspective at NJCU, I know exactly what you're talking about, writing stories left and right and being up late at night. But for those that maybe don't understand, you know, involved in sports information or just in general, you know, being an SID, how many sleepless nights do you have? Because I can imagine Alex Falk, I'm, I'm wonderful <laughs> in, in what he does. I couldn't imagine him doing the job alone. You're one in 1,000. You're still an undergrad. Well, I shouldn't say 1,000. Technically one in a million. But in terms of the job perspective, you're the only one. You're undergrad. You're probably working with a lot more people, especially from a graduate's perspective, that are older than you, that you're going through the same struggles as I did as, you know, a graduate assistant. How many sleepless nights do you go through? And how stressful of a job can it be, especially when things go chaotic? Because I've seen it firsthand that things go wrong quickly and you've got to take control and take the reins and make it your own. Yeah. So my sleep schedule is erratic. That's probably the best way to put it. Um, No two days are alike. Um, I get most of my work done between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. is really when I like to just bunker down, whether I just come into the office or I do it from my room. Like I like to just hammer stuff out really late at night. And just so people don't think I'm totally out of my mind, I schedule emails to send at, you know, 8 a.m. So they don't think I'm insane. But 
being in those stressful situations, like I thrive in the stressful situations of like something goes wrong during a game or whatever, because you don't have a choice but for it to work out. Like if a broadcast knocks out, that falls under my purview. Like you have to just problem solve, right? Okay, delegate. This is people's strengths and weaknesses. Here's who I can rely on for that. But yeah, I mean, we're lucky here that our AD is a former SID. Our senior associate AD for external is pretty hands-on with our office, even though he doesn't have that traditional sports information background. And so we have people that support us. And our university comms office is great. I mean, a lot of SIDs complain about university comms, but we're fortunate here that they're never telling us what to do or trying to interject in what we're doing. It's how can we best support you? And I think that's a really important relationship to have. So one of the cool experiences that came out of this uh, week and a half later is you get to fly down, you get to go to the Final Four, which I think is so fitting, too, that the SID from the small school gets to go to the Final Four in what was really the year of the small school. You get FAU and San Diego State facing off in a national semifinal. So what was that experience like getting to be there and witness the Final Four in person? It's that was probably one of the coolest things that came out of this. Um, I got the email as soon as our game against FAU ended and Tobin's doing his press conference. I'm an emotional wreck. And as we're walking him back to the locker room after, you know, the season came to an end, I was just looking through my email. Cause obviously you had like, we were doing the today show hit the next day. And so all those texts and emails are going through and all of that. And I see the email from Dave Warlock inviting me to join him and his staff. Um, at the final four site and work with the national media coordination committee and so after we got back our president's office hosted a big rally for the team and we had the bowling conference championship and then after that i flew to houston um it was a great seven-day experience just seeing you know how an event that size works and being able to assist and things like you know one shining moment when that ended letting you know cameras onto the floor and getting the schedule of the pregame warm-up clock to the teams, you know, for the semifinal. And so doing all of that in a football stadium, right? Because that's like basketball's not typically played in the stadium that, that large. Mm-hmm. And so actually being able to watch that, hear the roar of the crowd, see these students, especially from FAU and San Diego State be engaged. And it was also funny how welcoming the FAU students were when they recognized me. You know, they wanted a bunch of selfies and stuff like that, which is a whole nother level of weirdness that people want to take pictures with me. But having, you know, that experience, I hope I get to do it again because being able to help and support that championship experience, it's so rewarding. Because again, like you don't do something like this for yourself because Tim touched on it. It's stressful, the hours are long and it's often thankless. You do it to make an impact on others. And that's something that I've talked about whenever given the chance, you know, in these public forums and media outlets, it's being able to share what we're able to do for others. And so through my work with the NCA media coordination team uh, at the men's final four, I mean, that's just another piece of the puzzle towards working that. Now, when it's all said and done for this year in general, what would you say was your biggest learning point through this entire process to maybe carry over to next year or future years? Because with all the chaos, I mean, when you think about everything that's going on this year, you've had to have learned a lot, especially on the basketball and with all the the, the Final Four stuff. Yeah, it's... So the biggest thing that I don't think I learned, but it's solidified my suspicion 
was Division One athletics are the front porch of a university. And that's something our new president talks about. It's something our AD talks about. And it's not something that's talked about enough on campus. It is the value that Division One athletics brings to the entire campus. Like the fact that the New York Times had reporters walking around here during spring break interviewing students about what this means. That's obviously, I've been trying to get stuff placed in the New York Times for two and a half years now. They won't return my calls. And so the fact that they're here, the fact that they sent someone to Columbus, you know, Mark Canazaro with the New York Post was with us from the beginning in Dayton. Like seeing the power of what we do and then you see the metrics behind it in terms of like AVE and just Nielsen viewership and all that. It's so special. And that's why too, like some of the things we're working on, you know, you may hear some buzzing going on in our arena. We're redoing our basketball court because we're going through a rebrand. We'll be unveiling a new logo in a couple of weeks where, you know, getting more clear in our messaging and our, um, our, I guess, brand as a whole. And that's something too, like if you noticed from even 2019, when we were last in the NCAA tournament, the score bug said F Dickinson. And this year it said FDU. That was something that I had to fight for, for almost four months across all of the networks, because that's how we want to be represented. And so the argument I had to fight too was, well, okay, I understand UCLA is in the Pac-12, we're in the NEC, 10,000 feet up, we're both division one schools. Why do they get four letters and I'm asking for three and you're telling me I can't get that. And so I think you realize too, how a subtle change like that is so impactful. And then when you see, you know, tweets shared a million times, what do they, they see FDU. And then when you Google FDU, the first thing that comes up is FDU men's basketball. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just amazing. And I like your story about the New York times, how really winning one basketball game of that magnitude can essentially put an entire university on the map. And it's yeah. just, that's really the power that we see and what makes the March Madness so special is an underdog story. It means so much more than the basketball team. Of course, from a revenue standpoint, it means a lot, for, but just from an exposure standpoint too, to get yeah. to know about the school. Like we're all from the tri-state area here. We all knew what Fairleigh Dickinson was before they played, but People in Missouri had probably never heard of FDU, and now they do because yeah. of one basketball game. So it's just, it's really cool to see that. And I kind of want to finish. And with we changed. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. And Eddie, like, sorry, sorry to cut you off. We we changed our university's uh, mantra during that to seize the moment and change your world. Because that's what happened, right? Like, we took the smallest team in Division One, toppled Purdue who was the AP number one, I don't know how many times this season. And, you know, they're a perennial tournament team and they're always in the top third of the Big Ten, or top five even. And so to be able to capitalize on that, you know, with a coach who was passed over for division one jobs, with, you know, players who hadn't even received division two looks, being able to bring that story together with all of the other pieces that make FDU what it is, that's what it's all about. That's that's honestly the real madness of March is all the stories. Like we paid the Dayton band to perform for us, you know, and we just had them record our fight song. Um, yeah, it's it's all those elements.
So I want to finish with this, of course, for this show that now we're about to hit our third year anniversary. Me and Tim both went to the Bruce Beck Sports Broadcasting Camp, as did you. And I still remember young Jordan Sarnoff handing out his resume one day when we were there like five years ago. You have always been on that grind. Now, you didn't go down the, you know, spoken word broadcasting path per se, but you know, media relations goes hand in hand with that. So just to finish off, what are some of your best takeaways from your time when you attended this camp that all three of us at one time were all there? Yeah. I mean, my experience at both camps, you know, when it was at Moncourt State with Bruce and Ian, and then going to New Row for the one year with um, Mike Quick before, you know, diving in here full time. I think the biggest thing that you learned, right, and I think you guys can vouch for this, it's the prepara- uh, preparation and just the state of being prepared. You know, I remember um, when we were in New Row and we went to that local community TV station and there were a couple people who might killed the teleprompter. And he was like, all right, what happens? Teleprompter's out. Show's got to go on. And so seeing the ability to adapt, think on the fly, even though I'm not in those situations, I still need to ad lib when I'm moderating a press conference or when, you know, I'm talking to media on the phone and I'm glossing at notes and I'm putting together complete sentences. I think there's so much of that that goes into it. And a lot of those things you learned about, remember, like when he'd say, don't say, um, things like that. I mean, I, I'm cognizant of that. I apply that when I do interviews or when I'm assisting with the conference, doing things at that level and whatnot. So I think even though, yeah, like you said, I didn't follow the true broadcasting path, I was methodical in what I was able to apply, you know, from my four years doing the camp, you know, and like you think about it too, it's only a five-day camp. So that's 20 days out of, you know, how many summers it makes an impact. And that's why too, for whoever listens is that's of age to go to the camp. It is the best five days. And I think the three of us can agree. I mean, it's just, it's what it's all about. It is. It is. It is a great experience. I had a lot of prime takeaways from it that I've now carried to Rutgers and you did as well for FDU and their basketball team pulling off the massive upset Jordan Sarnoff, appreciate you so much for joining us here on Sportspeak. Uh, best of luck with the rest of the athletic season and the rest of your time at Fairleigh Dickinson. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Have a great summer. So that'll do it here on Sportspeak. Reminder to follow us on Twitter at Sportspeak Live. Our NASCAR pick him. I finally got a top three with William Byron, even though he crashed like at the beginning of the race, which was funny but you can follow along with that we'll have a new episode next week to talk about the nba playoffs but until next time i'm eddie kalegi and i'm tim moore signing off a sports speak enjoy the rest of your week